Hello and welcome back to the Health Tech Pigeon podcast where we break down the health tech news every single week. And this week I'm not only joined by my colleague James but also a very special guest, Faris Al-Ramadani, who is a GP, extensively experienced GP, but also who is MD of One Health and he therefore has an interest in providing health tech consultation services, providing that insight into what's going on on the shop floor and how technology can really support people who are helping patients. So welcome. Thank you so much for joining us. Hi, thank you, Jessica. Nice to be with you. How are you doing this week? What have you been up to? Oh, well, this week has been another busy clinical week. So um, as you're probably aware, Jessica, lots of people with viral illnesses and infections at the moment. So uh, the frontline GP work is still ongoing. Um, And I also do some work as a clinical director for a group of practices as part of what's called a primary care network. And so I spent quite a lot of time this week working on plans on how to improve some clinical pathways, particularly around mental health. That's been quite good. Um, which has not left much time for anything fun. So I've got nothing too fun to report, um, other than my two children have, uh, have requested two kittens and it was their birthday recently. So we're trying, to my, we're trying to merge the lifestyle of two new kittens and our pet dog. So that's been an interesting part of the week. <laughs> oh, wow. That really is a menagerie of challenges there. All very different, but I'm sure there's lots of learning that you can bring to all of those situations um, <laughs> from each one. Um, but I mean, you are absolutely right. I can only imagine what uh, the healthcare services are faced with right now. I have nothing interesting to add about my week because I've been struck down ill and been of very little use to anybody. Maybe able to hear the croak in my throat. But James, by some superhuman power, has been out and about and doing some cool stuff. So James. What have you been up to? What have you been doing? Thanks, yeah. My superhuman power is is relating to my ability to sort of get over the illness slightly quicker than Jess rather than any sort of innate superhuman power that I've got, uh, just to be clear. But um, yeah, got over the, the, the lurgy slightly quicker than, than Jessica. So uh, although it's still lingering, you can hear it in my voice, but managed to get out to a couple of events this week. Um, yeah, really interesting one with the BMJ they're looking to do an event uh, like a conference so just they've put an advisory board together so I was, I was down there with Ashley McKim and, and that team uh, at BMJX and as we all know particularly at Somex if you put X on the end of anything it makes it loads cooler um, and way more successful so uh, that <laughs> delighted that the BMJ have got BMJX where they're putting all of their interesting and exciting projects uh, one of which will be this, uh, this 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 conference to be decided so watch the space on that yeah the other one was a couple of days ago uh, Jack Kreinler a superb human being doctor expedition medicine guy uh, human performance institute he's got loads of stuff going on an inc- incredible guy who put together an event for the health tech world he had founders forum there and a few, few other a few other people but one thing that i will just say about that event is well actually two things i'll say about the event the first one is uh i think it was really interesting because jack allowed his own personality to flow through the event there was really hard science and research and cool stuff there there was creative and artistic stuff there and there were two real standout moments involving patients i guess reflecting jack's nature as obviously an incredible doctor and 
creative a scientist and a researcher and obviously cares deeply about his own patients and makes very human connections with people and so he just allowed that to come through his event and the bit that really sort of choked me up was there was a, a pediatric neuro-oncologist that did a that did a talk about um cancer pathways and actually uh, some of his work in essentially getting at one of those pathways and actually I'm being very reductive here, but essentially sorting out someone's cancer in, in their brain uh, to the point where um, they were in remission. And it's funny, and, and Farish, you'll know this from, from medical school and, and being a doctor, that we, we have these presentations where you see the you see the genetics, you see the pathophysiology, you see the diagrams, the letters, the numbers, the receptors, the genes, the this, the that, the x-rays, the vignettes, 35-year-old female has these symptoms and this is the differential diagnosis and this is the blind. It's very sort of technical and coded and impersonal. And there was a lovely slide at the end of the presentation which had... Um, which had the patient running a marathon. It was like, oh, and the patient's run a marathon and this is her and, and that was really nice. And then he said, and she's in the room and she stood up. And it's funny because even seeing the slide of her doing a marathon, it remained relatively impersonal. You can sort of work quite hard for it to become personal there, I think. But actually when she stood up, like I got really choked up of like, whoa, it was like a really sort of, I don't know, just a really powerful moment. And yeah, I, I, I was actually speaking to, because it was hosted at Havas, this conference, and Vernon, who I know listens to this podcast, actually, uh, and hi, Vernon. I, I spoke to him about it in the break of just like, you know, he's a, he's a reformed anaesthetist as well, and also in communications, obviously, as uh, chief medical officer at Havas. And I remember saying to him, like, that was really powerful, and I'm sure you appreciated that as, as much as I did. And you know, being a doctor and now in communications and, and we're chatting about, about just how powerful it was. But, and you can say these things like, oh, it was powerful and it can sound quite cliched, but it, it genuinely was. And actually I feel a little bit ashamed of myself because I, I wanted to go over and, and speak and speak to her, but I, and, and I had a couple of opportunities to, but I genuinely didn't know what to say. And I didn't, I didn't know how to show my gratitude for her being there without being a bit sort of corny, I guess. And then the opportunity passed me by, but it was a beautiful moment, I would say. And I spoke about it on the team call this morning at Somex of just like one of those points in time where you just sort of remember what you do and why. And like, it just sharpens you up, I think. And I think that's what it did for the room. It wasn't like a, it wasn't a corny moment at all. It wasn't tokenism of getting the patient involved and stick them on a panel and ask some stuff at the end. Um, a funny anecdote I heard yesterday about that actually about a patient getting up at the end of a conference uh, and saying it's funny how they always put the patients at the end and uh, I've actually got less time than everyone else but there we go um, but this was very much not that it was a very intentional a very specific and very sort of I don't know practical way to get people to realise that hey there's there's actually a human being at the end of these letters and numbers and diagrams. And actually this is why we do all this. Um, yeah, it was just, re just really nice. Just really, really nice. Really enjoyed it. Um, and came away with something different that I hadn't done from a lot of events that I've been to. So congrats to Jack and thanks to him and, and for Vernon for putting that on. It was great. I think it's really important, that, isn't it, James? I think that's the amazing thing when you're working in the health, health sector and the health tech sector when you bring it back down, you can kind of get lost in the technical detail, can't you? Yeah. And sometimes you need to be 
brought back to the, the real world as to actually how important this work is and the difference it makes in people's lives. And I think it's, it's easy to forget it. It's easy to lose it. But actually, it's the thing that drives us further and drives us on. So, yeah, amazing story, that, James. It does. And you sort of like, it, it sort of allowed us to feel good about it, actually. Like, it, it, just, it just genuinely allowed us to feel happy of like, oh, actually, yeah. Like, this is nice. We're doing this for people like this. We're doing, like, that's lovely. That's great. And it, it's energizing. And it's it's like, oh, I wonder I wonder if more patients came in at the end of medical school lectures, what that would do for people. I don't know how practical that is, but connecting people to the why for, for all of it. You know, if you learn the Krebs cycle, what happens if what that's interrupted? Like, can you, like, I, I don't know. Like, there's, there's something there for me of, of, of connecting people to the why. And perhaps... Perhaps it's because I need that more than others that I, <laughs> that I ended up um, not getting as fulfilled with the medicine. I don't know, but like, it, yeah, or found it very difficult to revise the exams anyway without being so connected to the why from my head in the textbooks. But yeah, I, yeah, I, I, I enjoyed, I enjoyed feeling feeling connected to the to the human side of it again because I actually said on the team call this morning that whilst I talk uh, quite a lot about. I never loved medicine, which is why inevitably it became too difficult for me to practice. Actually, there was there were elements that I enjoyed and like, you know, being thanked by a patient for delivering a good service and all the rest of it just became, uh, yeah, the, the, those are the night, those are the nice parts and the rest of it just became a bit too overwhelming for me. But um, yeah, interesting. I think it kind of highlights the fact that we, we always work, we work in an ecosystem, don't we? And I think it's easy mm. to forget that because we all silo into certain niches and specialties. But actually, it, if any bit of that ecosystem's lost or missing, the whole thing falls down. Everyone has a part to play, whether you're frontline clinician, whether you're looking at the data, whether you're developing the tech in the background, a software engineer. We all need each other, really, to, to achieve those outcomes. And if, if one of us isn't there, it doesn't happen. I suppose we just got to find that niche that drives us forward, don't we? And that, that thing that we love. And when you work by passion, it's completely different to working for necessity, isn't it, I think? I think it's so interesting that as an industry that is almost driven by purpose and why, um, it's it's still incredibly difficult to get connected to that in a really visceral or tangible way despite the fact that for the majority of us that is you know one of the big drivers for what we do and why we do it and I think that you know it's really interesting what James says because it is also really difficult to create those connections in a really authentic way without it feeling corny and you know knowing James as I do to be able to I guess elicit that kind of emotional reaction from him speaks to the quality of the event and the authenticity that clearly flowed through that um because that is a really difficult thing to achieve and <laughs> massive kudos to to jack and the team for, for for achieving that because i think you, you can come away from lots of events without having had that real connection you can have connection through the people that you talk to and that sort of thing but through the actual content being able to create that sense of purpose drive and make it really real for people without it I don't know feeling too glorified um yeah is is awesome there's so much that we can learn from that and I think it's definitely sparked some inspiration and ideas for me for sure and I wasn't there I've just heard it third hand from James so and it's sometimes that human touch too, isn't it? When you actually see people physically, like you said, James, it brings in a new dimension, doesn't it? Rather than just seeing a, a 
2D image on a screen, you've got the human there. And I think we kind of find that in our work too. If, if, if you're doing sort of remote only working, you kind of lose that human, the human factor. So I think it is really important to keep that alive. It is. And yeah, there is something about this actually, because linking this back into tech now, th- that that you just described that what is it that you that you miss when you don't get involved with the human what what is it that we get when we are human to human i th- i'm seeing that with the conversations that i've been having and the people that are involved particularly in ai that we're having to explore what is it about being human that we're learning what is it about healthcare being human that we are learning because when AI is now accelerating to a point of, you know, achieving AI takeoff and AGI and all these things. We're at a point where we go, well, can we just solve healthcare with AI? Well, the answer is no. And we know that intuitively. We know that healthcare is something human. We know that the care bit, it's not just the perfect diagnosis and treatment. It's not just the perfect prevention. There's a care bit there and we know that that's linked to the human bit of value but i think what's interesting is that we're having to define that we're having to actually think about okay well what actually is it about the human to human interaction and what is it about human consciousness interacting with other consciousness in the same bit of space time that elicits this feeling of care and can we measure that can we define that and then can we optimize for that and actually, can we make it efficient enough so that we deliver loads of that while AI does loads of good work in the background? So it becomes a new definition of, I guess, perfect healthcare, which is the perfect amount of human and the perfect amount of other stuff. And can we strive for that? I think that is super interesting right now of generative AI. And I had this conversation with Harvinder on the Health Tech podcast, and we started to explore that. And actually, if I, as I've explained it, there's probably the best I've explained, actually, of like, of trying to identify, you know, what is the human bit and can we link that with the AI bit and can we optimize, you know, it, 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 it's fascinating stuff, but I'm sure as Jess is going to guide us uh, into the stories that we'll end up talking about it. Well, you've, you've really left me with a conundrum there because I was actually about to say this leads us perfectly on to talking about remote consultations. And now you've started talking about generative <laughs> AI. I don't know which story to start with, but I'm going to go with my gut. I'm going to go with my gut. I'm going to start by talking about remote consultations. And the story in Pigeon this week that we're going to be talking about is from The Guardian. And it is, the doctor will call you now, are remote GP appointments safe? Now, this is an article that basically uh, is exploring some new research that has come out. It was published in the BMJ Quality and Safety with a team of researchers, quite an extensive team of researchers, actually, when I was looking at the paper. There's I want to say like nearly 20 people in there. Um, So pretty impressive stuff. But what they were doing was essentially looking into, as the title says, safety and not quite quality, but the parameters of safety for um, remote consultations in primary care for for GP practices. Um, And the, the data they've looked at is predominantly from 2020 onwards, but actually some of it does stretch back as far as 2015. Um, we know that obviously remote consultations have been around for a while and you know COVID caused a spike and we've come back down a little bit, but it's, it's definitely an interesting article. 
I had a good read of this and then had a look at the paper. And one thing that really struck me was that this research identified 95 safety incidents that were related to remote appointments. And that doesn't sound like a huge number. Um, And reading further on in the article and then into the paper, an additional researcher who was not involved in um, this paper said that actually that's an incredibly small number in the context of hundreds of millions of remote consultations that do happen. And that obviously there is fallibility in IRL, in real life consultations too. Trish Greenhall, who is a professor of primary care at the University of Oxford, who was involved in the research said that ultimately in real life consultations also you know have fallibility uh, and are reliant on having competent clinicians Um, which to me as a comment felt a little bit reductive given that the you know the the challenges we know that the whole of the health system is faced by um, and that, that competence probably is only one one factor here but This is right in your neck of the woods, Faris. So what what did this article say to you? Oh, well, it is. Yeah, it is certainly in my neck of the woods. That's for sure. Um, I think I took a few things away from it. And I think there's a couple of a couple of of points. What was interesting was it stated that there were 14 percent of um, sort of consultations were remote pre pandemic, rising to 48 percent during the pandemic and then dropping down to around 29.1 in October of this year, which basically was really interesting because I think it kind of gives us a little um, a little narrative on what's happened and Obviously, we know that during the pandemic, that really accelerated the implementation of remote consulting, sort of accelerated the implementation of health tech on a wider scale, I think, within healthcare and health services. Um, And it was there by necessity at that moment in time. Now it's not such a necessity, but it's obviously those those new those changes have become ingrained in our practice because um, it's dropped now to twenty nine point one percent, which which implies that it's twice now what it was pre pandemic. So I think it's really interesting to see that remote consulting is here to stay. Um, and you're absolutely right; the numbers in terms of the the ninety odd articles on the ninety five cases that they found is really really minuscule. If you think that at one point it was accounting for fifty percent almost of consultations. Um, I, I imagine this is there must be some sort of underestimation there and underreporting perhaps because that that would that does sound uniquely low to my ear anyway. Um, but I think the ingrainment and um, uh, uptake of, of technology and remote consulting is really really interesting, and I think it basically shows that it's here to stay. And when you're actually looking through lots of those cases, I, I think the conclusion that I've got is. And it's the same with all technology and all, all, all health technology. Rather than using it to necessarily plug gaps, the, the question is, how do we use technology to move us forward, to drive us forward, to improve outcomes, to improve both the quality and effectiveness of care? And I think those are the big questions. And I think if you're looking at remote consulting, lots of the times when those errors were happening, it was because it wasn't a consultation that should have been remote consultation anyway. We need to be really acutely aware of what situations you need remote consulting 
and what situations you need face-to-face consulting. And I think that's the big question. And I know from, say, our clinical work, if you ring our surgery to book an appointment, there's a specific list of presentations that definitely require a face-to-face first. And I think that's probably the way to do it. So we need to use remote when it's appropriate, but we need to maintain face-to-face care when that is appropriate as well. So I think it's just getting a bit smarter with when we use remote consulting and what modality of remote consulting we're using as well. And I think we have to remember lots of these cases came out during the pandemic when lots was moved to remote. And we have to remember that lots of GPs were not trained to do remote consultation. Uh, There's probably a training gap that exists there. Uh, So I think there's there's an awful lot around this, um, but it does raise those questions of what sort of care we're looking to deliver into the future. And I could go on. I could talk about this one for two hours, I reckon. <laughs> I'm going I'm to ask you to go on. Don't worry. So you mentioned there that, or echoed what I said, which was that 95 incidents sounded very low. Anecdotally, would you say that you're hearing that there is a greater proportion of issues, like safety issues, incidents that happen with remote consultations versus in-person consultations? Is that what you're hearing or your like your experience is telling you or Yeah, it's more my what my common sense is telling me. And I think this is the big problem with 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 we're sort of practicing medicine and I think one thing to try and understand is that when we work and you know certainly working as a GP where there's um, a lot of sort of high patient turnover we see lots of patients in a day the the work that we do is really a balance between not just the science of doing medicine but it's also the art of doing medicine as well and it sounds like a strange thing to say right and I was, I was even trying to think could you actually sort of give a percentage ratio of how much of this work is an art and how much is a science and in my head I was thinking I, I wonder if the art side of it's even more than the science side of it lots of the time you're going on feeling and you're going on instinct and you're doing what's called the sort of the end of the bed assessment. They're looking at someone when they walk in through the door to try and decide what's going on with them and whether they really are right or not. Because over the telephone, for example, you're really just reliant on the data and the information they're providing you. So that's not always the most um, uh, high quality source of information, right? We often struggle to explain what's going on with ourselves. We, we sometimes find it hard to it sort of sort of relate to people about the way that we're feeling at a certain time so uh, so I think within medicine there's huge scope for things to go wrong and uh, and that's just because humans are very variable machines you can't always tell what's going on problems occur uh, issues arise so 95 sounds low because across an entire nation of 60 plus million people you know we're finding problems all the time so um, that's why it feels a little bit low to have have that number 95 so it's more just more just that feeling I think I think it's it's more a sense yeah I guess it would be useful if it could be contextualized against in real life consultations and I guess shown as percentages perhaps where like percentage of in real life consultations and a percentage of those that experience you know, issues challenges safety problems and all of that kind of thing um one thing that really stuck out to me as well in in the article is it it cited one of the examples that had been included within the paper um, that said a receptionist was so distracted that they forgot to ask a GP to call a patient and consequently 
that patient died. Um, and obviously, it's you know, it's very difficult to know whether or not that patient, I, I didn't read any further, I don't know the further details of that, but whether or not that patient would have died anyway. But for me, that doesn't necessarily speak to an issue with remote consultations, because that could just as easily happen to someone who was calling up for an appointment anyway. It actually speaks to me of a broader issue within a healthcare system that actually remote consultations are in, in some way trying to solve. And actually, it's not necessarily specific to that. So I think maybe having that additional context and that other data would be helpful, but also being able to not attribute cause, but understand the the wider influencing factors, I think, on, on how, maybe how we categorise different types of issues and incidents that arise and whether or not they would have happened in an, in real life setting anyway. I think that's really true, Jessica. And, and you could almost ar- argue that, that that fatality might have occurred because there wasn't a remote consultation, right? Because they never got to the point of having that consultation uh, in that in that particular case. Um, so that was human error. So I'm not sure why that's on the list because that, that was human error. Um, but, but I think it is really interesting. I think there's there's a lot that you lose there's a lot that you gain by remote consulting and and i think the article clearly identifies that if you're discussing blood test results for example you've already been seen by a clinician so it's a review of symptoms then remote consulting is really really good it will always miss something and i think this goes back to the conversation we had before about care um and certainly when you're doing remote consulting you definitely miss out on vital signs because it's much harder to obviously and i know we you know there's things like virtual wards and remote monitoring at home now which might overcome that with tech but generally over the phone you have limited information to work with you don't see the patient and you don't get a feel for the sort of social situation that they're finding themselves in and i'm kind of thinking about a couple of cases recently or in the last year or two where I've had patients that would easily have been dealt with over the phone with a simple consultation but actually the fact that I saw them led to cancer diagnoses sort of just picking them up one patient who I suspect if it was remote only wouldn't have survived he just didn't look right went to hospital and had very very high levels of calcium of potassium so he probably wouldn't have survived so I can think of three cases I've seen where it's either been probably a life that might not have survived or cancer diagnoses which probably would have been able to be managed remotely but would have missed a higher level bit of information that really changed their sort of changed their sort of situation really so it is a a complicated one and it does go back as well to what James said about you know that care element and sometimes that human element needs to be there and and it it doesn't necessarily translate when you're working remotely and obviously talking a lot there about patients and I know from my perspective I'm a big fan of remote consultations it makes my life so much easier um and often not always uh means that I get a quicker appointment my most recent occasion means that it's not a quicker appointment. I'm waiting until next week to speak to somebody. However, generally it, it does, I think it's been really beneficial. And I, I, I say that a lot when we talk about remote consultations, but I'm keen to get your view on how clinicians feel about remote consultations. And I know that, you know, and that is also dependent on lots of factors, including their appetite for using technology, guidance, all of those kinds of things. But in your experience, the clinicians you're working with, are people broadly in support of it? Are they finding it's making their job easier or is it making it harder Harder, or is it causing greater stress for those reasons that you've talked about where you've had those patients that, you know, people may not have even survived? 
I'd probably say all of the above, you know. I think for some clinicians, they quite like the remote working. Um, they feel comfortable and confident in doing so. And then some clinicians feel the complete opposite, which is they feel like the loss of that that sort of soft human intelligence. It makes the job a lot harder and more difficult and less satisfying and less rewarding. So I think from a clinician's perspective, you've got the two extremes, but most people fall somewhere in between, I think. And that somewhere in between is probably that sense that, yeah, this can definitely improve access to care, the efficiency with which we deliver care, delivering care in the way that the patient want. Like you said, Jessica, like some people, some patients really want that. So it definitely serves to that. But I think it's kind of that awareness at the same time that actually we might be missing information and that can make us feel really vulnerable at times as clinicians. So I think it's somewhere in between. I think the I think the real art is going to be around identifying in what situations and circumstances that remote consultation is OK and safe and going to be really productive. And in what cases it's really not going to be like, for example, in recent times, we've moved to many places of practices have moved to sort of telephone first systems or online first systems where you have to do that triaging bit but actually if there's always going to be an appointment that requires an examination then you just create an inefficiency and a frustration for the patient so an inefficiency in the system and a a problem for the patient uh, and a frustration for the patient because you're leading them down a garden path that you know the outcome is going to be that didn't need to be that sort of triage or the online aspect or the telephone aspect because a face-to-face appointment was always going to be necessary which almost plays in to AI. We've got to try and fit AI in here somewhere. And maybe there's a role here for AI in terms of trying to support um, the receptionist, if you like, or the first point of contact, trying to help that person better navigate that patient to the right place. So I'm I'm sensing that there will be an increasing role potentially for AI to fill in that space, because at the moment, you've got a system where receptionists are kind of told that they're booking people and are having to make decisions. And they'll often tell you, well, I'm not trained to make these sorts of decisions. Okay, so what do we do? Well, AI, rather than replacing our healthcare, I think in reality, it's going to be an adjunct to our healthcare. It's going to be an enabler to, you know, push the ceiling, raise the standard, do more, do better, um, but not necessarily replace the humans, because I don't think that's that's particularly tangible or likely, but it will allow us to do the job better, more efficiently, more effectively and safer. Maybe if we had an optimally optimally staffed health system or anywhere around the world had an optimally staffed health system perhaps that might be a concern but I think where there are such huge gaps I don't think that that is likely to be the case anytime soon certainly from what I've heard Um, and I also tried to do a bit of research to look obviously we're talking very much about the UK context here but it strikes me that actually this is likely to be quite applicable whatever health system you're in whatever country you're in you know that's obviously a big generalization but I I was interested to see you know what uptake and retention of remote consultations was like elsewhere and I, I, I did some research to see what was out there and there really isn't a huge amount on this kind of safety analysis but it looks like in the US actually that they have retained a higher level of remote consultations than in the UK and Australia as well and I obviously the maybe different reasons for that. Australia has lots of rural communities and perhaps that's opened up a lot of opportunities there for for, for greater access to care, which is clearly very different to perhaps being in the UK where, of course, you have rural communities, but actually it's just, you know, totally overburdened system. But I'm interested to understand perhaps why why the US has managed to 
retain a higher level of remote consultations. And maybe that is related to the more payer-driven and commercial side of the health system that they have and potentially better access to, to technologies that can deliver the right support. I don't know. Um, so that's, that's maybe a question to answer another time. But I don't know if... James, have you got any views on this? My, yeah, my views... I, I think Faris has, has nailed it, to be honest. I mean, I think the, the the skill of a GP really comes out here. Like, you know, the the complexity required to understand... The end of the end of the bed test and sort of something is a bit off. I can remember being in A and E, and it's low. Every every clinician has got examples of this. I can remember being in A and E and seeing someone, bloods were normal, everything was normal, everything was, like literally everything was normal. She just had some epigastric pain. It was like, well, the 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 sister in charge was just just gunning for me to just send this person home like let's not let a breach i don't want breaches don't want breaches like fair enough and i was just begging like please can i just hold on for like four i just want to i just i just want to keep it here i don't know why i just want to keep it and then just before the four hours just massive hematemesis and ended up in resus and you can't and perhaps that's that's pure coincidence i don't know but was it that or was it picking up on a few relatively imperceptive cues is it this human thing that we've talked about the the shared consciousness in space and time that's some something in our training or was it just simply a case of picking up on a hundred or two hundred little things that don't raise the markers of anything but as a human being you notice movement and color and perhaps you just you know you just notice a few different things that, that are different to normal i don't know but until we quantify that, I don't see AI taking over anytime soon. Perhaps AI helps us get there, though. Perhaps AI helps us quantify those things. But there's no denying that there is something about being human when it comes to assessment and triage that we can't quite yet replicate. And I think the the systems that we do put in place, though, play on the side of safety there. And I think that's a good thing. But we're moving forwards in that world, I think, of AI triage and all the rest of it. That, that was the first thing. The second thing, I think, even, even to just talk about a world of remote consultations versus something else is just a bit reductive now. I think we're just at the point, and I think, Farish, you, you sort of alluded to this anyway, we're just at the point now where it's like, we're just talking about where it's relevant. We're not talking about if it's relevant. So it's almost like is the Guardian pretty far behind with this sort of thing, like trying to drum up some sort of emotive response to like a couple of errors being made at a ludicrous scale because of like some dated concept of like remote versus in-person consultations. Like in the health tech world, let's be honest, we've moved far beyond this. Like let's just talk about where they're useful. And actually you look at the new GP contracts, like having to deliver out of our services, of course everyone's going to lean into remote consultations as a way of doing that as a means of like some baseline safety and ability to deliver care. So it really is just about like, where should this be placed rather than anything else? Yeah. And the third one is AI doesn't have to be patient facing to make a difference. And Faris, again, you, you mentioned this and Jess, you mentioned this as well. Like in that example of someone being too distracted to ring someone back, well, where can the AI play there? Well, the AI, AI can play in acknowledging there was a consultation, acknowledging there was an action, and then nudging a human being to make that action, or indeed ringing through to that patient and delivering via an AI voice the answer or whatever it is. It does or it doesn't have to be part of patient-facing or indeed diagnosis and, dare I say, treatment, all these other words. It doesn't have to be there to make a difference. We can think, and we are thinking, and there's plenty of companies in health tech, 
people doing this, thinking, where can AI play safely to do things that aren't necessarily diagnosis? It doesn't mean we're using chat GBT to diagnose people. And I know that's like a common belief and misconception is building in the public of like, oh, AI is going to come and diagnose everyone. It's an easy thing to point to. It's not happening. It's not It's not doing that anytime soon with any, any, any legal web app out there or anything. So yeah, I think it's just a case of remembering that too. And actually when you bundle all of those things together, there's a, there's a, there's, it's a bit of a frontier. Like how do we actually decide where the best place is for technology acknowledge where the human can be the best and optimize for both? I think similar to what we talked about a little bit earlier. And I think that's really true, James. And that's kind of one of the things that led me led me down the route of consultancy in this area was kind of that realization that the tech's all there, the real world problems are there, but how are we interfacing the two? How are we making sure that the solutions are really speaking to the problems? And I and, and I think that's really a, a huge, you know, it's something I'm absolutely fascinated by, but I think that is exactly it. How do we bring it? How do we interface it? How do we make it better? The only thing I would add is oh, this Guardian article yet again is quoting something and someone from the University of Warwick. There is lots and lots of digital health research and advancement that seems to be coming out of the University of Warwick. Faris, I believe that's where you went to med school. That is, yeah. Warwick University was my medical school um, and I still live and work local to, to Warwick Medical School. I think there was, I think it's quite a, yeah, I think it's quite an innovative university and I think that they, they invested a lot of time and effort, particularly into primary care research and I mm. think that might be what we're seeing through here. So um, yeah, I think there's a, there's a lot of good work being done at Warwick University. Interesting. Yeah. So for anyone that's looking to uh, get involved in any research or a student or becoming a student, certainly consider the University of Warwick if you're interested in primary care or, or digital health. Um, we should definitely get someone from there on the podcast. Let's talk about our favourite topic, generative AI. And this is a very well-timed article because uh, ChatGPT had its first birthday last week. So it was released for public use by OpenAI on the 30th of November, 2022. So one year later, hasn't the world changed? And we are all now on tenterhooks about what's the latest in generative AI, large language models, who's doing what, what's Google's MedPalm doing in healthcare? How is it changing the world? And who has been fired and rehired from OpenAI? But that's not that's not what this conversation is about this week. We did talk about that a little bit last week, I think. Maybe it was a week before, can't remember. But this is an article from Nature that talks about how generative AI could revolutionize healthcare, but not if control is ceded to big tech. Now, I guess... That is an interesting statement, considering that ChatGPT was the child of OpenAI um, and that, you know, there's obviously lots of operators in the system, but big tech are doing a lot of different things to try and stay at the forefront of this frontier technology, as, as you said, James. There's a second story actually in Pigeon that relates to this, which is um, New England Journal of Medicine study, which talks about accurate differential diagnosis with, with large language models. And this actually is a study from Google and DeepMind, but that has had its critics too, which has ultimately said that 
there's not a great deal we've seen in terms of new insight from research that we're getting in even the last eight months. So regardless of the fact that LLMs have absolutely exponentially had this meteoric rise, um, the, the quality of that, that clinical research really hasn't improved over the course of that time. And I think those those kind of two stories link quite nicely together. But I'm going to stop talking because it's my specialist area of expertise is uh, women's health and women's health technology. So I'm going to hand it over to two people who are far better equipped to talk about what this means in clinical practice and what the story is telling us. So Faris, what have you taken away from this one? Uh, I think the thing that I took away from the, the, certainly the study that was looking at the differential diagnosis or making more accurate differential diagnosis, I think was really interesting. Um, and essentially, the article there is, or, or, or the study there is saying that we can more, by utilising large language models, we can more accurately um, uh, achieve a differential diagnosis list. And for anyone that doesn't get what that's on about, um, when you go and see your doctor with a particular problem, um, they will consider your symptoms and in their head, they will be running through an algorithm probably um, and that algorithm is trying to consider what the possible options the possible diagnoses are um, for the problems that you've presented with and that's the differential diagnosis list it's not the diagnosis formally it's just the options of possible diagnoses um, and I think it's really interesting this because essentially it's saying that where where AI and large language models sort of assist the clinician they're more likely to lead to a more accurate list of differential diagnoses and essentially, that resonates with the idea that we can use AI as sort of a clinical decision tool. We can use it not to make the diagnosis for us, as we said before, that that's quite a complicated process. And sometimes there are human factors that perhaps can't be replicated in, in some of these models. But actually, we really can start using this technology now to help us um, as sort of augment the, the, the sort of thought processes that we're following. Um, so, yeah, I, I think it falls into that idea that um, AI can definitely serve as clinical decision tools um, to help support a clinician make the right diagnosis or at least steer them in the right direction for the right diagnosis. So I think that was really interesting. Um, and I think the Nature article was was, was really interesting too. And I think the, my takeaway from that one was essentially the, the, the need for um, sort of on a national level to be creating more open source models um, that can be used by healthcare systems, um, leaving healthcare systems less vulnerable to sort of the corporations that are developing them um, but not the fact that states need to develop them but it's more co-development so open source um, development which involves everybody in term, including the, the health tech companies and that will obviously lead to you know potentially hugely significant improvements in clinical care. I think it's I do think it's interesting and it's good that Nature has published an article on it I think that's good impact factor of you know publication a journal like that means that you know more heads turn from a bigger amount of, you know from more places and it gets the conversation going a bit more i think though in in an attempt to be very comprehensive this perhaps has fallen into a bit of a trap of being a bit disparate and a, and a bit a little bit all over the place and let me explain so one of the things that comes really high up in the article fourth paragraph it it says that 
healthcare institutions risk ceding the control of medicine to opaque corporate interests. That is a heck of a statement. And it's a stance, and that's fine. And of course, that is a risk. We have to determine how much of a risk. It then does. It then says medical care could rapidly become dependent on LLMs. That's also, I guess, fair. That are difficult to evaluate and that can be modified or even taken offline without notice, should the service deemed be deemed no longer profitable. All of which could undermine care, privacy, and safety of patients. Now that escalated very quickly in, as a paragraph. Uh, where it was like, we've got to acknowledge there's risk. And by the way, we could become 100% dependent on this, on a company that only cares about profit, who will just turn it off and kill loads of people. That 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 I think is going a bit far. And I think has to be contextualized as like, it's a similar thing that happened with, with that Hugh Harvey talks about with AI and radiology, that someone gets up on stage and say and says, AI is here and it's, it's coming and it's going to take all of your jobs and... You know, you extrapolate from where it is now to the future. That's what's going to happen. And then it's just fear, 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 fear. And then there's this AI versus doctors, AI versus humans, tech versus humans. And then then there's a gap. And then there's people that don't like each other on either side. And then it all becomes an argument. And I guess what I don't want to happen here is the same for a technology that could be fundamentally changing the way that we deliver care to solve real global health challenges. And so I just want to really stop any fear-mongering there or at least provide a counter-narrative. The other thing I want to talk about now, where it talks about the benefits of LLMs, it talks about the fact that they've shown impressive capabilities in, in the entire medical domain. Accurate. I'm happy with that. In March last year, Microsoft researchers described how GPT-4, which has no medical-specific training, can pass certain medical tests, including the USMLEs. Um, fine. Okay. There's, it can pass some exams. We're not saying it's going to do any more than that. That's, that's not causing any harm. It's just you know demonstrating an ability to understand things. And, and okay, fine. Clinicians often preferred clinical notes that were generated by GPT-4 to those generated by physicians. So we're talking about co-pilot stuff here. Again, that's that's a good thing, right? Like that's that's useful. That's things we can learn as humans with our writing notes at the, at the least. It can write our notes for us, potentially at most. Um, other work has shown that it can pass specialist exams, same as before. But then it says it can it can it has demonstrated impressive abilities in diagnosing challenging cases and also translating consent forms into language that can be understood by patients it sort of conflated two things there in the same sentence that are wildly different from any sort of regulatory or or other many other senses right like diagnosing challenging cases that's a heck of a statement if you know anything about mdr <laughs> regulations and translating consent forms, which obviously carries carries risk in a different way. But I guess my point is that there's a list of stuff there that it says LLMs do, which is a bit of a box of frogs. It's not really segmented them into saying like, here's the patient facing diagnostic assisting or that type of thing over here. And there's some other stuff in admin and translation and co-pilot note-taking over here. It's not really segmenting the two. And I can understand why why it becomes fearful as a technology when you don't do that exercise. Because you can immediately conflate 
large language models are coming for everything and they're just going to descend and change healthcare in a thousand different ways. And it's going to be diagnosing, it's going to be writing the notes, it's going to be telling me what to do, it's going to be, oh my God, it's going to be controlling the robot in surgery, it's going to be doing it. Like, God, it, it, it can get really overwhelming. Goodness me, it's, it's like, it's overwhelming enough just trying to keep up with, with. I mean, Google released one yesterday, like or two days ago, like a new LLM, like Gemini, whatever. Like, it's so difficult to keep up with it, even, even if you're in tech, let alone if you're in healthcare with all these people saying it can do more, it can do more, it can do more. Like every every two hours, it's like there's something else in healthcare is going to come for. But the article does then talk about safe integration, which is great. There's things that we can do. It talks about open sourcing, which, which again, is is definitely an argument. We heard from Kareem at the, the, the biotech dinner, like open source versus closed is, is a very, very hot topic in tech and stuff. But I like, I like what it proposes, uh, 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 something similar to the Trillion Parameter Consortium, which was announced earlier this month, a global consortium of scientists from federal laboratories, research institutes, academia, and industry to advance AR models specific for scientific discovery. Uh, in healthcare, such a consortium could pool all of these computational and financial resources, as well as all the expertise, as well as all the healthcare data, um, and do some good stuff building an open source model, which can be using publicly available data. Those members can then share insights. I think that is a, is a really nice thing to go for. And I think it's a really nice sort of conclusion to it. But obviously then it's all up for debate. It says it's, it says quite quite reductively at the end, all sorts of issues need thrashing out. And that's, you know, in a very short sentence, but uh, it's true. It's true. And I, I think that is the point. I would though say that starts with acknowledging and segmenting and classifying where LLMs can come in, where we're comfortable now, what requires a bit of work for us to be comfortable and what requires a lot of work for us to be comfortable. And let's digest it in that way. And then let's talk to our clinical frontline about it. And then let's talk to our, you know, our admin and managerial staff. And let's talk to all the people that are involved in these things. And, you know, Dom from Tortoise said something which has stuck with me ever since he said it, which was Tortoise, by the way, is building a co-pilot for, um, uh, for clinical care that sits in the background and, and automatically transcribes and helps with note taking, et cetera, to reduce the clinical burn. And, what he said was when they were piloting, he literally just went around to everyone in the clinical area, the nurses, the doctors, the staff, and just said, what are you worried about? And just gathered from them on a very real human person level, what are you worried about? And what can I do to help with that worry? What could I show you that would help with that worry? And that, just that is a, is, a, is a micro version of what I think should happen in the macro, which is there are people that want to push this, this technology for really good reasons. There are people that want to resist this technology for very good reasons. There are people that want to regulate this technology for very good reasons. There are people that want to use this technology for very good reasons. There are many good intention people in healthcare that are grappling with this right now. And just as Dom did in, in that very local at that very local level of just having a conversation, I think that is what would be very welcome to me across this, which is if we can put these different groups of people together in perhaps those categories of like, where are we comfortable? Where are we a little bit uncomfortable? Where are we very uncomfortable? And there's three different degrees of work that are needed there. 
let's put some groups together to start doing that stuff. Um, and, and, you know, for rightly or wrongly, a lot of that's falling on the entrepreneurs that are building this to, to, to do that, like Dom, who's doing it very effectively. But for any of you that haven't seen or heard about Tortoise, I know Dom's been on this podcast for anyone that listens, but I definitely, uh, T-O-R-T-U-S, go and look that up. They're doing some good stuff. Sounds like there's some events in that for us. Uh, not least one that you would thoroughly enjoy running. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> Lovely. Well, on that note... It's almost time to wrap up, but Faris, I would love to hear a little bit more about the work that you're doing at One Health. And I know that you specialize in working with VCs, but also with, with health tech companies, but what is it that you're doing? How do you, how do you, how do you support people? Yeah. So essentially it's, it go, goes back to what we were talking about earlier, really. You kind of, when you're doing the day job as a GP, you see the problems that patients are facing and the services are facing. Um, and then when you're running those GP surgeries, you you see that in greater detail. And then, um, uh, and but at the same rate, you fully understand the technology that's coming online that can potentially make a difference. And I've had lots of people from health tech companies come and see me and propose their product. And actually the problem is the product sounds really good, but it doesn't necessarily resonate with a problem patients are facing on the ground in the real world and often it's really hard to see who would pay for that solution and how would you implement that solution and those are really big problems so you've often gone a long way down the route of developing a product before you've actually realized that this might not actually work um, so what I want to try and do is I, I do want health technology to really make a serious difference um, and I think it really can and it can definitely have the power to change people's lives and we, we've kind of already seen that with some of the technology that, we, that we've introduced and so I'd quite like to help and my consulting side is uh, through One Health is essentially trying to help health technology companies um, better understand the landscape that they're going into what is that healthcare landscape that they're looking at? How does it work? Um, where is the need? Where are the problems? How are we addressing those problems with these particular products? Um, and then how do we get them out there? How do we implement them? How do we sell them? Um, and how do we get them actually translating into something that makes a difference for, for people and for healthcare? So, um, yeah, that's my long-winded way of trying to trying to explain how I've got to where I am and, and, uh, and what I'm seeking to do. Nice. Well, I mean, I have seen a lot of conversation just this week on exactly, exactly that challenge where, you know, so many innovators, entrepreneurs who perhaps don't have a clinical background, but have a really exciting idea can end up a long way down a certain path or trajectory without necessarily validating it with, with the right people, not least clinicians like yourself and, and others that you work with who experience these problems viscerally. Um, on a daily basis and can also advocate for, you know, potentially the people who would be procuring it um, and have the budgets, but also patients as well, the users. Well, it's not necessarily just patients who are the users, but, you know, often, you know, there's, there's a gap there. So I think it's really critical service that, you know, everyone who is working in health tech needs to find some way to, to get that expertise and the right advice so that they end up actually making the impact that they want to. Because as I said, right at the very beginning, it's such a purpose driven space. Everyone ultimately wants to make a difference and you need the right expertise, the right people in the room to make sure that whatever you're doing is pointed in the right direction to really hit that bullseye and make the impact you really want to make. So awesome. If anyone wants to get in touch with you to find out more about what you're doing or to work with you, how should they do that? 
Oh, well, LinkedIn is the place these days. So um, you can find me on LinkedIn um, or uh, One Health is one hyphen health, uh, as in spelt O-N-E hyphen health.co.uk. But uh, yeah, LinkedIn, more than happy. Anyone who wants to get in touch, feel free. More than happy to talk to anybody. Awesome. Well, thank you so much once again for taking the time to chat to us today. It's been such a good conversation. Lots of windy roads, but we managed to join everything up along the way. So that is hopefully a great lesson for everybody else out there. And we will be back next week with some more news stories and some more guests. Looking forward to seeing you then. Bye-bye.